All right. Good evening. Now that we have volume, uh, volume is a necessary thing. Um, before I forget, did you say 630? Because <laughs> I forgot already. Uh, on Friday, Good Friday service this week for those that are here, for those that are at home. Uh, we have Good Friday service this Friday, 6.30 here at the church. Uh, we'd love to have people come join us um, uh, for that service. I believe Alistair will be bringing a message uh, on Friday. So if you are able to come down and join for that, it would be great as we work our way up to um, Easter Sunday and uh, Resurrection Sunday. Uh, what, a, what a glorious thing that we get to celebrate uh, as a church family together. So I would encourage you to come and join us for that. Uh, if you have your... Bibles, which hopefully you do, um, take them and turn to 1 John, as we will continue in our study there. 1 John, we are in chapter 2, and over the last several weeks, we've been looking at the Apostle John's first letter here to the church, and we've seen how he's been focused on contrasting what is false with what is true. He's had to do this because of the false teaching and beliefs of the Gnostics and others that have been, uh, that's begun to infiltrate the church um, in some ways, and all their lies that have come in and caused confusion and caused trouble, they begin to trouble the believers um, in their relationship with God. And John is writing to, uh, to true Christians to remind them of who they are in Christ Jesus. And over and over, he affirms their salvation if they pass the test of what a true Christian is. And that's what we've been seeing is, is a lot of different tests that, that a, a believer can be looking at here in the Scriptures to examine themselves with and determine, am I in the faith? Uh, and that's what John has been doing. He says that those, those that profess to know God but deny their sin or and, and walk in darkness, and ignore the commands of God, and hate their brothers, are not Christians, but they are self-deceived liars. And worse than that, they make God to be a liar by their error. And they claim to have fellowship with the Father, but they do not. No matter what they claim, they remain lost in their sins. Uh, they have no advocate before the Father. Christ is not the propitiation for their sins. Instead, they are blind. They're walking in darkness, as he described it. They have no clue where they're going, uh, and this leaves them without hope in the world. And John is showing that, that though they profess to know God, they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work as we saw in uh, Titus 1.16. In contrast, John has he's begun to reveal the marks of a true Christian, those who can be reassured of their place in the kingdom of heaven by certain evidence. True Christians, as we've seen, walk in the light. They have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus cleanses them from all sin. True Christians acknowledge they are sinners. True Christians confess their sins to God who is faithful and just to forgive them their sins and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. And true Christians have benefited from Jesus Christ the righteous who is the propitiation for their sins 
and their advocate before the Father. And true Christians keep God's commandments in response to salvation. Okay, true Christians walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. And true Christians have love for one another, proving that they are abiding in the light. Okay, these are the things we've been seeing that John has written. And last week, that's where we ended up, was with talking about the love uh, of Christians for one another. So question, can anyone know for sure they have eternal life? If someone asks you that, can anyone know for sure they have eternal life? Yes, absolutely, right? Absolutely. And remember, John's stated purpose for writing this letter is that you may know. That you may know what? That you have eternal life, right? 1 John 5, 13, that'll come later in this study. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If that isn't an indication that we can know and that we can have assurance, then, then John's lying. Then the scriptures are lying. But that's his purpose for writing. So what we see here in this letter gives, can give assurance to believers that they have eternal life. That's why John is writing. He wants the children of God to know that they can know. And, to, and, and he's been revealing to them how they can know. Buddhists cannot know. Okay, Hindus cannot know. Muslims cannot know. Jehovah's Witnesses cannot know. Mormons cannot know. Roman Catholics cannot know. No other religious system gives their adherents any assurance of salvation. Only biblical Christianity, only the true gospel of Jesus Christ gives assurance. Why is that? Why is it that the gospel of Jesus Christ, true biblical Christianity, is the only religious system, let's say, that can give that assurance. Right, because Jesus did it. He died for our sins, right? All the work is done by Jesus Christ, and salvation is obtained by grace alone, through faith alone, in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we can have assurance. There's a reason why it's called the good news. It's not called the opportunity to give, your, your, give it your best shot, right? And that's where everything else leaves you, okay? Every other religious system falls flat because they have a system of works to earn salvation and ultimately leaving men and women with no hope, right? If, if you ask them if they're going to heaven when they die, the best they can do is say, I hope so, okay? Uh, that's no assurance at all, is it? That doesn't sound like assurance. Works, righteousness leads to one of two outcomes here on earth and to the same end in eternity. Okay? Either a person has to try even harder to earn their salvation, if that's the system you're going by, or they'll just give up because there's no use. And, and they'd be right. There's no use. Both of those earthly outcomes then lead to an eternity in hell. Because neither one of those can save. Only the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him. And the Bible is so clear on this point. Romans 3.20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. 
It cannot be any clearer. No human being will be justified in the sight of God by works of the law. And biblically speaking, the good works that God's people do are only ever realized and done after salvation, right? In response to salvation, by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, the evidence of salvation is visible after salvation. So John continues on in his encouragement of the believers. He's writing to those who are believers in this next section as well, and he's talking about uh, the spiritual growth uh, of believers. Okay, let's look at our passage for tonight, and then we'll pray. First uh, John chapter 2, verses 12 through 14 is where we're at. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Okay, let's open in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for this night. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the assurance that you offer in Christ Jesus. Thank you, Father, that your way of fixing the sin problem, your way of the forgiveness of sins is right and true and trustworthy and accomplished by your Son. We thank you, Father, that it does not rely upon our own merit, for we would fail all the time. We thank you that that our sins are forgiven in Jesus Christ. What an amazing, amazing gift. And we thank you for these words that can encourage the believers that we can know that we have eternal life. We thank you, Father, that by your grace you have revealed that to your children. That that for any of us that are in, in Christ, Lord, it's only by your grace and your mercy that you revealed the truth to us. It's not a thing to be held over people's heads, but a thing to be proclaimed so that others may believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for it. We thank you, Father, for the fellowship of believers. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so here in our, in our text for tonight, John talks about three groups, children, young men, fathers, and he seems to be saying the same thing twice about each group. And I don't know about you, but I've, I've always found it curious that John does this uh, in this passage. Um, but we shouldn't be thrown off or confused by it. Um, it's, it's actually a pattern that we see in Scripture uh, in many places, patterns of repeating things for emphasis. Okay? So, for example, uh, probably one of the most frequently used repeats in the New Testament is truly, truly. Okay? It's the same word twice. And in fact, John records Jesus repeating this in his gospel account 25 times. And that's really where we find this in the scriptures. This is, this is what Jesus says. Truly, truly. 25 different times. Like John 6:47, where Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. And Paul says, uh, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, 
I say rejoice. Okay, Philippians 4.4. Jesus asks Peter three times, do you love me? Okay, emphasis. There's, there's emphasis here. Paul repeated twice to the Galatians, let him be accursed who does what? Who brings any other gospel. There is no other gospel, right? To the one who would bring a counterfeit gospel, let him be accursed. And he repeats it twice. Says the same thing twice. And perhaps the most powerful of repeated words is not only found in Revelation, but in Isaiah's account of what he saw and the vision that God gave him. Um, and he wrote of the seraphim calling out one to another, saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And we talked about that, I think, a couple weeks ago and when we talked about the holiness of God. Um, so things are often repeated in Scripture for emphasis. And that is what we have here. We have John emphasizing what the relationship is between God and his children by repeating things. Okay, he makes two statements to each group, but the, the only one that he repeats the exact same statement is when he, when he writes to the fathers. Okay, first... What does he say to the children? We should notice that John uses a different word for, that's been translated as children between verses 12 and 13. He says in verse 12, I'm writing to you little children. Okay? The first word he used there in verse 12 is translated, that's translated as little children uh, is a word that means born ones. Okay? It's used of, of offspring in a general sense. and It, it doesn't have anything to do with age. Uh, the age of a person, but it's, it's used very commonly in the Scriptures to refer to all of God's children, to believers in general, okay? And here John is referring to all the children of God in general when he writes this. And he says in verse 13, now, I write to you children. And the second word he used in verse 13 is, is a reference to children who are still under parental instruction, Okay, and again, this is not really about age, but more about level of maturity. And these children, they still don't know everything. Okay, they they're immature. They need a lot of care. They need a lot of instruction. Um, it, it's not bad that they're in this place. It's where they are in their growth, uh, in the process of their growth. But the point is that they would they need help. Okay, they're they're immature, and in this case. What John is doing is writing, this is a reference to believers who are children in their faith. They're, they're new believers, perhaps. They're immature believers uh, in the faith. So in verse 12, he wrote to all of them as God's children. No, no matter if they're, in fact, children in their growth process or young men or fathers, he wrote to all of them in a general sense in verse 12. And what did he write then to, to all of them when he, when he wrote in verse 12? A reminder a reminder of the two most important things in the universe, that their sins are forgiven and the reason why their sins are forgiven, okay? So have you ever thought about why your sins are forgiven? What would you normally say if someone asked you why God forgave your sins? What, what do you think would come up right away? Why? He loves us, right? That's, I think that's kind of normally what would pop into our minds when, if someone were to ask us that question. And, and it wouldn't be wrong. I mean, the Scripture tells us that He loves us. 
Um, it, so it wouldn't be wrong, but it can and does lead people then to think uh, or even unwittingly communicate that they were somehow worthy of that love or, or forgiveness. Not true, right? We're not worthy of that. Um, but do you ever think about the fact that there's an even more important reason why your sins were forgiven? Well, John brings that up here. He tells us this more important reason, and it's the most important reason. What did he say? Your sins are forgiven for his name's sake, okay? For whose name's sake? God, Jesus Christ, right? This, this is all about the glory of God. As the psalmist wrote, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. And what the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah, I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Okay, that's Isaiah 42.8. So it should be no surprise to us then that the Lord who shares his glory with no other, would do everything he does for that glory. That's what God is doing. Everything he does, he does for his glory. Does he love his children? Absolutely. But more than that, he loves to receive glory. And so turn to Psalm uh, 79, if you would. And while you do, I'm going to look at a couple other uh, passages regarding God acting for his own glory. But so while you're turning to um, Psalm 79, um, I'll look at those. Psalm 57.5 says, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Isaiah 48.9, For my name's sake I defer my anger. For the sake of my praise I restrain it for you, that I may not cut you off. And Psalm 25.11 says, For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. For his name's sake. Look at, with me, if you will, at Psalm 79, starting in uh, verse 8. And we'll look, I think, at 8 and 9. Okay? Do not remember against us our former iniquities. Let your compassion come speedily to meet us, for we are brought very low. Help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name. Deliver us and atone for our sins for your name's sake. We can see that God is all about getting the glory. And he absolutely receives glory when he saves wretched sinners by the death of his own son. That's why it's all done by him and we, can't, we can only point to him and say, look what he did for us. Praise God for that. Because if we did something to earn it or something like that, then what could people say? Look what you did. Look what you did to earn that. And that is not what it's about. Jesus did it all. Okay, So he, he gets the glory. And, and John reminds all those he's writing to that this is a reality. God is glorified in saving them, in forgiving their sins. He receives glory. And it's, so, so it's for his name's sake. And he also receives glory, of course, in being just and punishing unrepentant sinners in hell. He receives glory for that also. 
because he's a just God and that is the right thing to do. And the next time John refers to the children, it's not in the general sense here uh, regarding all of God's children, but specifically those who are young in the faith, okay, those who are immature, more vulnerable to veering off track and following after false teachers. Usually, uh, I think you would agree, new believers are excited, they're, they're motivated, they're eager for learning and, and can sometimes get into things that they should really avoid. Um, they're not yet grounded in the Scriptures. They need extra care. They need to be looked out for. Um, and the growth that they need comes with time. And John says in verse 13, I write to you children because you know the Father. Again, he, um, he's saying this is, this is what he's writing about. He wants them to know this. He's reminding them that they know these things to be true because they know the Father. He wants them to remain grounded in that and be able to move on to maturity. In other words, this is the truth about God the Father through His Son that they know. Pay attention to these things. Pay attention to what I'm writing to you. Stay grounded in these things. Okay, they're, they're not to remain children in the faith, however. Okay, we shouldn't think that someone doesn't become a Christian. We don't want them to remain in an immature state. Um, what happens when people remain children? Well, they get tossed around like waves of the ocean, with every unbiblical teaching, everything unbiblical that they, they might tend to believe. And Paul wrote of the reason uh, that we have the church and godly teachers. Uh, and he said in Ephesians 4, uh, 14 and 15, we have these things so that we may no longer be children, right? Tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's what happens to children. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up, he says, in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. That's the goal for children in the faith, for the immature in the faith, is to become mature. Right? So what does John say of the young men, this, this next group along the road to Christian maturity? That's what we're seeing here is this picture of a progressing maturity among believers. Verse 13, he says, I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And verse 14, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Okay, so we do see that particular phrase repeated there. Um, these are those believers who have indeed moved on from childlike faith, from the, the childlike faith that they had at first. Uh, they have been consuming the solid food of the Word of God and have grown to a place where John says they've overcome the evil one. We sometimes believe that, that when it comes to Satan, all we have to worry about is Satan tempting us to sin, right? Like That's, that's all I have to look out for is just I, I don't want to do this wrong thing or do that wrong thing, which is true. We don't want to sin, and we do have to, to be on guard for those things. Um, but we sometimes think that's all we have to worry about. Like, that's the primary way that he gets people. But is it really? We do a pretty good job of sinning on our own, don't we? I don't really need Satan to 
He doesn't make me a sinner. I am a sinner. And I think most, the most damaging thing that Satan does in the church is bring false doctrine to draw people away, right? To cause division, confusion, lack of assurance. Uh, isn't it more productive if you're in, if in Satan's worldview, let's say, to create false systems of belief that keep people from believing the truth about God? Isn't that a more effective way for him? And can't we see that that's what he's doing all over the world? Look how many hundreds of millions of people around the world are caught up in false beliefs about God. Every other religious system is a false belief about God. Those people are lost in that. That is Satan's work, to give a little bit of truth, something that sounds good. And that's why the Scriptures over and over again tell us to be on guard, to watch out for these things. So John is emphasizing here that the young men or the people at this stage of of their faith are those who've overcome this scheme of Satan. And how have they done it? How have they overcome it? The Word of God, right? Following the sound teaching of the Word of God. He said, the Word of God abides in them. They are marked by this characteristic, these young men. They live by the Word of God. Like the Bereans, when they heard the words of the apostles' teaching, uh, Acts 17.11 says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's the example of mature believers, those who hear the word and say, let me check with the word and see if this is true. They want to know, is this what God says? Paul instructed Timothy in many things as his spiritual child in the faith and wanted Timothy to pass these things on to other believers. 1 Timothy 4, 6 says, if you put these things before the brothers, remember this is Paul telling Timothy this, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. And that, it's all over the scriptures, this idea of following the teaching, following the sound doctrine of the scriptures. And that is what Christians need. Christians need to be trained in good doctrine, in the Scriptures. This is how we overcome the evil one. All of his schemes, all of his plans to give little bits of truth, but mix in a bunch of lies to draw people away, because the lies, what are they? They're attractive. They, they, you want to go to those things. It's like a bug to the little blue light thing to get zapped. You know, they're like mesmerized by it, and they fly right into it, and uh, they get zapped. Um, we don't want to fall into that, so we we need to be anchored to the Word of God. That's how these young men that he's writing to have overcome the evil one. That's why new believers need to be encouraged to be in the Scriptures and growing. And then growing believers need to be encouraged to remain in the Scriptures. Because you don't move on to this next level and then, well, I'm good to go. We, don't have, we can't just let our guard down. And this is what John meant when he said the young men were strong. Not that they were physically muscular or powerful, that's not what he's talking about, but that the source of their strength is what? What's that? Their faith, the Word, the Word of God, right? That's what makes us 
strong, is the Word of God and staying with that. Um, and they were strong in the Word. It was not a passing hobby for them, okay? That's why John emphasized this there with them. He said, the Word of God abides in you, okay? Now to the fathers, to the next level, so to speak, of Christian maturity. John repeats the exact same thing twice to them. Verse 13, I'm writing to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. And then in verse 14 again, he writes, I write to you fathers because you know him who is from the beginning. These are Christians who have even moved beyond the knowledge of the young men to a place where they are not just learning and knowing things intellectually, but they are meditating on the deep truths about God that continually shore up and expand and strengthen their faith. And how many of you um, have a deeper knowledge of God and the amazing deeper knowledge of the deeper truths of the gospel now than when you first believed? Yeah. As, we're, as Christians, as we continue to grow and learn, God continues to reveal more and more and more through His Spirit. That's the job of the Holy Spirit in the believer. He teaches us things through the Word of God. As we read, He brings that revelation to us and makes us aware of those truths. And every time we continue to learn new things, um, it's, it's so encouraging. And you realize, man, I, this is... This is even better than it was before, right? And it spurs you on to even more growth. But when we set that aside, what happens? I mean, what happens when a, when a person stops eating? They'll die. They, they don't grow, right? Uh, we, we, have to, we have to eat. If we're in our physical bodies, we have to eat to live. Um, and it's the same way with the Word of God. We have to consume the Word of God. It is our spiritual food. Uh, it is what keeps us growing. And uh, we grow into these things and come to understand them as the Spirit of God teaches us. John reminds them that they know, they have come to know God. They've come to know Him who is from the beginning. Psalm 90 verses 1 and 2 records a prayer of Moses that uh, indicates this mature, sort of settled understanding about God. Psalm 91 and 2, a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. There's a sureness from the testing by fire through life's trials that comes about in the lives of maturing believers. And the scriptures are front and center to inform every aspect of our lives, right? When we are struggling in life with ongoing sin, with loss, with fear, with whatever it might be, the Bible speaks to all of it. It informs the Christian. And uh, so there's, there's a sureness to it, and that's what's, where these fathers are at. They're at this place of maturity, um, they don't move beyond the young men in the sense that they no longer need the Scriptures, of course. That's not what's being said here, and that's not the goal. What John is describing here is sort of like, or 
your Verizon wireless plan or your direct TV plan, right? There's always a basic plan, and then for a little more money, you can move up to the extended plan, and then for a little more money, you can move up to the extreme plan or whatever, whatever they might call it. They always got fancy names for it. But the thing about these, if, if you notice, uh, is that each new plan keeps everything from the, the lesser plan, right? It doesn't dump those things. It adds on to them. It, it makes them better. So you, you take what you originally had, you add to it, and that plan is wider, bigger. It's, uh, it's better. And then go to the next one. You've kept all those things, and you're adding on to it more and more. So the children move to young men, but they've done so by building on to what they already had. Then the fathers do the same. The life of the Christian is a constant growth to maturity. It, it's a constant growth to maturity, but never reaching it, really, until Christ returns. You know, as I've preached the last couple of sermons I've done are, have been on that um, Christ-likeness. That is our, our goal, is Christ-likeness. We pursue it. Um, you know, Paul describes the pursuit of that in terms of a race and those kinds of things. We strain for it. We push forward to it. Uh, and, but it won't be realized until Christ returns. But that doesn't mean we give up on it. The goal of our life is to continually strain for it. It's a, it should always be the goal of every Christian to grow and to continue to grow in the knowledge of our Lord. The goal is not to reach the next level and stop. That would assume you could you can know everything. Well, I've, I'm there. I've done it. You know, I'm good now. And that's not the case. What we can know um, is everything that God has given us in His Word. Everything that God has given us to know and intends for us to know, we can know because He's given it to us and He will teach us. And it's enough for a lifetime of learning. I mean, has anybody here been a Christian for more than 30 years? How about more than 40 years? Okay, so between 30 and 40, that's a long time, right? Have you, are you done learning? <laughs> no. Right, we can continue to learn all the time. It's an amazing thing. You, know, you take this book and, and, and we read it, and the Scriptures themselves tell us that we understand these things spiritually because they're spiritually discerned, and only the Christian can do that. Because we have the Holy Spirit that teaches us. And that's what John is talking about here. He's talking about, he's encouraging these believers, whether you're mature, whether you're the young man, whether you're the father, all of them have their sins forgiven for his name's sake. That's the starting point. And it's not that it's bad to be immature. I mean, it could be indicative of a problem if you've been a Christian for 30 years and you're still immature, you still know what you did when you first were saved, that, that uh, indicates a problem. You're not in the Scriptures. You're not studying. You're not learning. You're not growing. But So it's the goal of Christians to move beyond that. It should be our goal to all be at that stage of the fathers, right? Not to remain infants, not to just remain the young men, but to keep moving on, to keep moving on to that next level of maturity. Uh, and that's what John is writing about. He wants to encourage them with assurance, their sins are forgiven in Christ. And now move on from that, and you grow, and you learn, and you mature. At the end of his second letter to the church, Peter left the people with this description of the importance of 
the spiritual growth that John is talking about. 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18. It says, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the end of eternity. Amen. And John repeats himself, as we've seen here, to emphasize the great truths about being a child of God and continuing to grow and mature as a child of God. That's how they overcome the evil one. Those schemes, we recognize those schemes. We're not trapped by those schemes of the devil. Okay, the work done by Jesus Christ puts, uh, puts us all in the place of assured salvation when we repent and put our trust in Him alone. God, you know, God doesn't uh, love immature Christians less than mature Christians. Uh, immature Christians are not less saved than mature Christians. That's not what this is about. It should be our goal, though, to continue to grow and learn and mature in Christ. By God's grace, He's given us His Spirit to help us continue to grow uh, into our salvation until our Lord comes back to take us home. And that's what, we're, that's what we're all waiting for. Won't that be a wonderful thing? Uh, but in the meantime, we have the Word of God. We have the Helper, the Holy Spirit. We have, as we've seen, our Advocate, Christ Jesus the Righteous, who is our propitiation. Uh, so that's what we have for tonight. Uh, in this and the next time, we'll move on, starting in verse 15 of chapter 2, and talking about not loving the world or the things of the world. So let's close in a word of prayer, and then we'll have our time of Q&A. Father in heaven, we thank you again for tonight and for your word. Thank you, Lord, that um, our salvation is secure in Jesus Christ. Thank you for the assurance that we can have in that. Thank you for your word that reassures us. Help us to be in your word. Help us not to remain at any time, at a particular level of maturity, but always to strive forward for Christ-likeness, to grow in maturity. And we do that, Father, by being in your word and by your word abiding in us. I pray that will be the desire of every person here, um, Lord, that continually we'll be pointed to the scriptures. Um, thank you, Lord, for the helper, the Holy Spirit, who teaches us, who leads us into all truth, we thank you, Father, for your sanctifying work in our lives through every trial, through every hardship. I pray, Father, that we would be reassured every time that um, in our weakness we are strong because of you, Father. May you be praised and receive all the glory all the time for your good work in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.